0: Thanks for listening to the Oasis City Church podcast. We're located in Boise, Idaho, but wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you and empowers you to take a step towards living a life fully devoted to following Jesus. Open up your Bible with me if you have a Bible. If you have a paper Bible, you can flip there. If you've got a digital electronic Bible on the App Store, that's awesome too. You can scroll with me. If you don't have a Bible, don't feel bad. It's okay. We'll have Bibles up on the screen. Uh, but Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. Matthew chapter 9, 9 through 13. Y'all ready? Halfway ready? You need some time? Say, hold up. Okay. Matthew chapter 9, 9 through 13. I'm reading out of the new international version. And it says this, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth, follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, or some translations say those who think that they're righteous, but sinners, but sinners. Would you pray with me this morning? Jesus, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we lift up your name. You are good and you only do good. And this morning we ask that whatever's of me would fall away. But God, I ask whatever's born of your spirit, would it resonate in our hearts and minds? Would you use this message to do what only you can do to transform us, God, from the inside out? Lord, it's an honor to gather. It's an honor to worship you. Love you, Lord. We're so thankful. In Jesus' name, come on, if you love God, say amen. Amen. Hey, come on, give it up for this band. Y'all are killer. Thank you guys so much. Thank you guys so much. How many of you guys travel for work? Any, anybody travel for work in here? few of you guys, okay. Hey, anyone travel on planes a lot? Do you have to fly on planes? Maybe you just like to travel. Who's those people that's like, I'm just always on a plane? Okay, way more of y'all. Okay, here's the deal. I, I over the last year, um, I spent about nine years, almost a decade in youth ministry. Um, but this last year, um, as I got ready to, uh, pre- prepared to plant this church, to start this thing up, I took a job uh, with a parachurch organization that specializes in staffing and consulting. And so I have been on more planes in the last year than I have ever been on in my life. It was wild. I think between August um, and October of this last year, I was in 21 different cities between speaking engagements and consulting and uh, preparation for church planting. It has been an absolutely wild ride. But how many of you know when you travel that much... You start to get pretty good at it. Like, you become pretty efficient as a traveler. Now, you, a lot of you probably know this that if you travel a lot, you have like the carry on suitcase, you don't check that bag. You carry on the plane, right? Because you know they're gonna lose the bag, they're gonna ship it to Vegas, something's gonna happen, right? But you carry on and you got your like your three go-to outfits that you always go to. You got your your airport shoes. Come on, everybody's got a pair of airport shoes. It's your Crocs, right, with the fur. Like you got something that are your airport shoes, and you got your noise-canceling headphones, single people to cancel out the babies. On the plane, I'm sorry. That's me. I, I'm the one with the babies. And um, but you get used to it, right? You got this kind of flow to your travel routine. But even the most experienced travelers are no match for traveling with children, and specifically toddlers. Anyone ever travel? Where's my road trip people at? Raise your hand. Road trip people with your kids. Y'all are crazy. Don't. Twelve hours with a kid going. Are we there yet? Are we? there? Dad. Dad. Son. Boy, we ain't. There. Calm down. Like, it's, it's wild. Okay, what have you, have you flown with your child? Raise your hand if you've flown with the child. Parents. Oh, y'all, y'all are brave. You made it back. You survived. Congratulations. You actually made it out alive. It's one of those things, if you've never flown with kids, maybe you're single. Maybe you're the person that's mad at us on the plane for having the crying baby. Listen, let me just explain this to you. Flying with kids, and specifically toddlers, um, it's kind of a nightmare, and by kind of, I mean entirely. It is an entirely a nightmare trying to travel with children. And for a dad, uh, I like to picture it this way. For a dad, this is kind of like the equivalent of running a Spartan race, okay? You ever seen like the Tough Mudder? You've seen that race? It's like you crawl through the mud and there's fire rings and you're jumping through it. That's a lot how I picture going to the airport for my family. Uh, because what happens is like we're always late. We're never on time, right? Finally, we're like, okay, I think we got everything. And then we're like, oh, no, the baby's pacifier is gone. And parents, you know, it's like, we cannot survive without the pacifier, okay? Like, they will throw us out the window at 30,000 feet, okay? Like, we, will, we need the pacifier for this baby. My wife's running around the house looking for a special cup named Stanley. She can't find it. Stanley has to come. And so we're looking everywhere, and my son eats, sleeps, and breathes with Buzz Lightyear. And Buzz and Woody got up in the middle of the night. They took off. I don't know where they are. And so we're looking everywhere. We can't find Stanley. Finally, we find Buzz Lightyear because we get in the car, step on top of like a McDonald's bag, and all of a sudden you hear, there's an uncharted mission in the second space. Right, it's like, Like you hear Buzz and you're like, we found him. Praise God. Find Buzz and you load up all of your bags, everything you need, babies in the car. I got three kids. Arrow, he's six. Ezra's three. Kaya's nine months old. Okay, so we got a crazy packed car. Bags in the back. Finally, drive, get all the way down towards the airports. We get the kids unloaded. We get the stroller out. We drop the baby in the stroller. We're, not actually drop the baby. Calm down. We put her in the stroller carefully. We put her in the stroller. But like I, I'm like, all right, cool. Grab the bags. And then I'm like, oh, you got to bring the car seats and so now I'm unclipping the 500 five-point harness car seats and I got them over my shoulders and I got Buzz Lightyear tucked under here and a, a fluffy under here and I got these bags behind me and I'm running as if I just hijacked the baby section of Walmart running across the parking lot looking like a fool and I finally get this through this mad dash moment I get to the counter and I'm like Whew, I made it I'm feeling good but here's the problem and parents you would know this single people take notes for later in life when you're a parent, you shove as much as possible into as few of bags as possible. Because you don't wanna be hollering around all these things, because your three year old's gonna go, I'm not pushing that. I wanna ride on it, Dad, like sit on the, no. And so you shove as much as possible into as few as bags as possible. And you've been at home, you weighed it on the scale, it was 50 pounds at home. But somehow on the drive to the airport, it gained three pounds. It ain't like your Samsonites back there snacking on Doritos. I don't understand. But somehow, over the course of this drive to the airport, you have gained three pounds in your bag, and the airport attendant looks at you and says, hey, stone cold face, right? No emotion. It's 53 pounds. Cool, man. Throw it in the back. Now you're going to have to do something with those three pounds. And you're like, bro, do you see that I got three kids? Two kids. I lost one. Do you see what's happening right now? I... I can't be like, can't we just, bro, can't we just look the other way? And they're like, no. You're going to have to do something. So you know what you do. You put your other bag on. You see what kind of margin you're working with. And now you're pulling out clothes and looking at your dirty underwear going, oh, shoving it in the bag. Like, you know, I hope it's not dirty. You're packing it. Oh, yeah, watch out. But it's... <laughs> But you're like sitting here trying to find the margin between the bags, and listen, there's like not much margin. So you're like, oh, come on. So now you're like, you know, I'm throwing on sweatshirts and layers, right? Your wife is throwing on like four tank tops, like it's the early 2000s again, right? Millennials, where you at? Like all the tank tops, pink under white, you know? And so I got my wife doing that, and we're all sitting here looking crazy. But it's one of those moments, right? Everyone's been there before where you get and they're like, man, You are gonna have to get those three pounds out of your bag. You're gonna have to do something with it, or you're gonna have to pay extra. If you don't pay extra, if you don't get the bag, it's not going to travel. And so you're just desperately trying to get under the weight limit because you know if you don't, they're gonna make you pay, or they won't let your bag on the plane. And while this is frustrating, oftentimes when it comes to God and to uh, particularly having a relationship with God, there's many people in our world, and even many Christians sadly, that have this idea that they think that God kind of operates a bit like the check-in attendant at the airport, like there's some kind of baggage weight limit. That's like, man, if I approach God, if I come up to him, there's a weight limit. It's like, man, you gotta feel, you gotta fix that or you ain't getting on the plane. You're not coming with us if you don't fix that. Not only that, we get this idea that man, I mean, there's certain things or certain sins that weigh more than other sins. There's certain things that weigh more than other things do. We start to think like this. Like if your baggage is just like jealousy, maybe you gossip sometimes, maybe you speed from time to time. If that's your baggage, it's like, yeah, that ain't that big of a deal. But man, if it includes adultery, that's gonna put you over the limit. You're gonna have to pay for that. If there's any of the more serious sins, man, that's just too much weight. You're going to either have to pay more, it's going to cost you something. You're going to have to somehow work that off. And we get this idea that there's a scale, and our scale is measuring, man, how much does this sin weigh versus this sin? And we sit there, and we're like, for whatever reason, a lot of people just get stuck on this idea that there is this scale. And they're like, man, like pornography, drug addiction, alcoholism, whoo, adultery. People are like, that's a really heavy bag. That's a really bag heavy bag. You're going to have to deal with that or you're not going to get in. But again, some other sins, we act as if they're acceptable on some level. We're like, you know, things like the occasional lying. We're like, ah, it's not that bad. Maybe you cheated on your algebra test in college one time. Maybe you drink a little too much every other weekend. No big deal. We think, ah, it's not that big of a deal. But what we're going to talk about this morning exploring our time together is this idea that a baggage limit or or this idea that there's a scale weighing your sin is completely and totally false it is incorrect and no one hear me no one is too far gone for the grace of god to get a hold of their life and so at a surface level listen the text we read earlier at a surface level our text seems very straightforward jesus calls this guy named matthew matthew it says he's a tax collector and so he calls this tax collector matthew Says, follow me. He follows him. He has dinner with his shady friends. The story ends. That's pretty much how it goes. At a surface level, that's how it looks. But let me just give you some helpful context for this particular passage of scripture. As I said, Matthew was a tax collector. Now, for some of you, that probably conjures up some kind of image of like a middle-aged balding man from the IRS who's like, why do you need another car for your business this year? Really? Again? Or like your uh, other write-offs that you say, yeah, it's fine. I needed a new lamp for business, right? You know, Watch that. (laughs) But that's not the image I want you to picture this morning. You see, tax collectors in this time, they were despised by the Jewish people. And I mean despised. So think of the IRS, but instead of just taking like a slice of your hard-earned cash, these people were cheating you and robbing you blind and using that money to fund an oppressive government. That's what was happening in this particular day and age. Not cool. So let's be real, nobody really enjoys the IRS, but this is very, very different, okay? This is different. This is, this is uh, like I said, they're funding an oppressive government. This is, um, let me give you an example that'll be helpful for us to understand in today's, in today's terms. This would have been very similar to a Jewish person in Nazi Germany being like, hey, you know what? I'm not sure that I like these people either and I'll, I'll work with you. That's the kind of twisted, messed up, thing that Matthew, the tax collector, is doing. He is stepping on his family, his friends, his own people. He was a traitor. He was the definition of a sellout. And so he gives his life to a to, to, uh, high life. Listen, the, Matt, let me just explain this about tax collectors. They were wealthy. Like tax collectors had money. They had power. They had protection from Rome. They were living the high life, but this is a high life that had built, it had been built on the oppression of their own People. So the fact that Jesus stops and has a conversation and talks to this guy, like that would have blown his disciples' minds. Jesus is stopping to talk to a tax collector, but then he goes even further and he has the audacity to look at this tax collector, this sinner, this bad person, this traitor, this sellout, and he says, Follow me. Follow me. He says, Follow me. Can you imagine the disciples in this moment? These Jewish men, they're like, are you kidding me, Jesus? Do you know who he is? Do you know what he's done? Do you realize that he has stepped on our people? Do you realize he's a traitor? He's a sellout. He's a bad person. Yet Jesus looks at this tax collector, at this sinner, at this bad person in this text, and he says, follow me. And I love the response of Matthew in this text. Because the response of Matthew, this, this bad person, it says that he got up at once, he left his post, he left his tax booth. He just walked away from it and he followed Jesus. And there's much to learn from the immediacy in which that he, he just followed Jesus. But uh, we'll talk about that a little later on. Later that evening, it says that in, in the text that Jesus is reclining... At Matthew's table, and I love that detail, he's reclining. My man's relaxed at Matthew's table. And Matthew has invited some friends over to join him, other tax collectors, disreputable sinners, the kind of people that you tell your kids to avoid hanging out with, they're all there, everybody. And they're hanging out, and they're enjoying a meal together. Now, the Pharisees were a religious group. Uh, They almost acted as like religious police. They had a lot of political power in this day and age. And they catch wind of what's going on, and they go, and they see. They see this particular banquet taking place, and Jesus sitting with these tax collectors and sinners. And they ask the question, why does your teacher, this is to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And the disciples of Jesus are sitting there, they're thinking, oh, oh." and here comes Jesus. He overhears the question, and he says this, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, but the sick. And he lets them know, hey, listen, I have not come to call you guys who think that you're righteous, I came to call sinners. And so he's sitting there in this moment, he's trying to highlight, basically, to these religious leaders what his purpose is and who he is. Came for. So Jesus is trying to show them, yes, I am a friend of sinners, that is true, but all people are sinners. All people have messed up. All people have fallen short. So Jesus is trying to show them, hey, hey, your scale is off. Your scale is off. Your scale is broken. You're not measuring the right things. And these religious people, these Pharisees, man, they they think they're going to heaven because, man, we're good people. We keep the law. We do these good things and good works, and we're not like those other people. We're not like those tax collectors, those sinners. We're not like them. We're, we're good people. But hear me, friends. You are never in more danger of hell than when you think that you're going to get to heaven based on your good works and based on your morality. Your morality, your inherent goodness is not going to get you there. And I really hate to just burst your bubble this morning, but I'm going to. Good people don't go to heaven. And I know you're like, what? But hear me, good people don't go to heaven because truly good people don't exist. They don't exist. The Bible doesn't ever teach that. The Bible doesn't teach, it's like, man, yeah, there's good people and man, it's like your heart is good and if you just follow your heart, everything's gonna work out. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't say follow your heart. The Bible says, follow me. That's what Jesus, he says, follow me. Don't follow your heart, follow Jesus. And so there's only one who is good. And it's not us, it's God. There is only one who is good. It's Jesus. In Romans chapter three, it says this as it relates to this idea. And this is chapter three, verses 10, 11, and 12. It says, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, there's no one who seeks God. All have turned away, they have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. How's that for a feel-good church verse this morning? <laughs> like, y'all glad you came to church? All right, cool. Paul says there is nobody good. Grandma's not good, mom's not good, your brother's not good, the guy who took you on a date's not good. Your friends already told you that, but you didn't listen to that. But he's not good! He's not Good, the fact is nobody is good. And the Bible teaches that good people don't go to heaven because there's no one that's good and as good as you think you are. Hear me, I'm sure you pay your taxes. I'm sure you love your grandma, okay? I'm sure you take care of your neighbor from time to time, shovel their their driveway, their walk, that's awesome. I'm not telling you to stop doing that. But what I was saying to you, as good as you think you are, I need you to hear me very clearly. According to the biblical definition of what is good, none of us meet that standard. I don't meet that standard. Our worship team doesn't meet it. You don't meet it. Our dream team doesn't meet it. None of us meet the standard of what is good according to the Bible. And I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we'd be willing to raise our hand and say, yeah, I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. I've screwed up, I've made mistakes, I've fallen short. I'm not, I'm not perfect according to the biblical standard of good, which is without anything wrong, we have all fallen short. And so I wanna play just a a quick game. You guys remember playing the game, as kids, never have I ever? Y'all remember that? Okay, put your hands up, everyone across the room, five fingers, all right. If you have ever lied, put a finger down. If you've ever lusted, put a finger down. If you've ever cheated, put a finger down. If you're giving me the middle finger, stop doing that. <laughs> if you have ever stolen, put a finger down. If you've ever had envy over someone else's life, stuff, relationship, whatever, put a finger down. You can put your hands down. Because you see, let's just, let's just stay with this illustration for just a moment. If you've lied, how many times do you have to lie to be considered a liar? One time. How many times do you have to steal to be a thief? One time. Here's another question. Single people. I talked about married people earlier. Single people. How many times would the person you're dating have to steal a car for you to be like, yeah, that's probably not a great character trait. I, 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 don't think, I don't think this is going the same direction. And he's not. He's like headed to Mexico. He's out of here. Right? Like, One time. One time is all it takes. And the Bible says this. In terms of lust. If you lust after someone in your heart, it says in Matthew chapter 5, according to Jesus, that's the same sin as adultery. So the moment that we've lusted in our heart after someone, we've already, according to the biblical definition of what that is, we've already committed that same sin of adultery. You've done it at a heart level. And so you, you see the biblical standard of goodness is very different than our standard. Because you and I, our standard is like, man, if they're good for the most part, they're good. The Bible's definition is if they're good in Every part, they are good. and the reality is is that every single one of us falls short of that. Every single person on this planet is broken on the inside. You and me and everyone, we're all broken on the inside. There's the sin nature, the sinfulness to every single human being that does not allow us to reach the biblical standard of what is good. We can't get there on our own. And if you grew up at church at all, if you maybe you grew up in Sunday school, maybe you went to church with a friend sometimes, I don't know, maybe you've just heard about this religious kind of idea, and you're just kind of like, ah, yeah, I know a little bit about church. You may have even in church heard some foolish and inaccurate things. Things like, you know, the Bible's just a, a good book full of good stories about good people, and you want to be like the good people. Can I tell you something? That's not the Bible at all. It's it's not even the contents. It's literally not the Bible. The Bible is a book full of broken people, messed up people. And those broken people were so broken, they tried to kill Jesus, the only good person in the whole Bible. That's the Bible. That's the Bible. And listen, in the text that we read today, I love that in this particular story, Jesus calls someone like Matthew, and he dines with him. He has this banquet banquet. With him. And I I I want to just highlight to you the reason that these Pharisees would have been so upset that because you're like, man, why are they getting so worked up over Jesus just having a dinner? This isn't like you and I going to Sakai, okay, and grabbing like a 45-minute bite to eat. This is this is very different than that. This is in this culture, this would have been Jesus considering them friends. This is a very intimate act to dine. This is sitting down, he's reclined at the table, sandals would be off, and they're hanging out, just sharing bread, sharing wine. This is an intimate, this is multiple hours. This is not a 45-minute touch base. Like this is, this is him hanging out, getting to know these people. And so these Pharisees, they're, again, they're dumbfounded. And Jesus tells them, again, as I've said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call those who think they're righteous, but sinners. And listen, Jesus called Matthew while he was in the midst of his sin. know if you realize that Matthew when he called him he's literally sitting at his tax booth he's literally sitting there robbing and cheating people when Jesus walks by here's this Jew here's Jesus he he walks by and Matthew at this time I'm sure looked at Jesus depending on if he knew him or not and we'll kind of contrast both those let's say he didn't know him he just sees this guy come by and he's thinking here's another Jew about to give me a tongue lashing about to give me a piece of his mind, about to tell me how he feels about who I am and what I'm doing, and he's ready for it to happen. But Jesus, Jesus stops, and he looks at this sinful, broken, bad person, and he says, follow me. Follow me. I love that because instead of ripping into him, he lovingly challenges him. Follow me. Imagine Matthew's shock as Jesus said these words to him. Listen, this may have been the first moment of kindness a Jew has shown Matthew in weeks, maybe months. Maybe this is the first time since he became a tax collector that a Jewish person had stopped and been kind to him after he had been a traitor, a sellout, after he stepped on his... Maybe this was the first time someone showed him kindness. As Jesus says hey, follow me, follow me. If I was Matthew, I'm sure if he knew who Jesus was even, I'm, I'm sure he's like, let's just say, Matthew, earlier in Matthew chapter nine, there's a story of Jesus healing the paralytic. What if Matthew from his tax booth saw that take place? What if he saw the miracle? What if he had heard the stories? Jesus's reputation this time would have been growing and, and he may have heard of the miracles. He may have heard of these stories. Imagine with me for just a moment. What if he knew who Jesus was and Jesus looks at this sinful, bad person and he says, hey, follow me. And Matthew's like, me? Do you know who I am? Do you understand my past? Do you understand what I've done? Do you understand that I've I've hurt people? Maybe he even knows I'm a bad person. And you're saying, follow me? Like imagine the inner shame he would have dealt with. Like Matthew knows what he's doing is wrong. This does not take a therapist to figure out that what he was doing was not good. He's hurting his own family, his friends. He would have been wealthy, but he would have no one to share that wealth with. My man's got the Lambo. Ain't nobody riding in it with him. That's what it would have been like. And so he would have been battling shame. And if he knew who Jesus was, maybe he even felt amplified because he's heard of this, this teacher, heard of this, 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 this guy. Who's, man, he's raising the dead. He's healing sick. He's multiplying. What's going on? And this man shows up to me. I'm sure he's sitting there in that moment. Just going, what is going on? As Jesus looks at him and says, follow me. Right in the midst of his sin, in the midst of his brokenness, Jesus says, follow me. And Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says this. But God demonstrates his own love for us. In this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, this is the biggest difference between us and any other religion in the world. You don't work your way to God. God came to you. And he died in your place for the penalty that you and I deserve to have to pay. And Jesus said, whatever they owe, I'm going to pay it for them. Listen, and Jesus, didn't come to, and Jesus didn't come and die to make bad people good. Jesus came and died so that dead people would come alive. That is the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin. To be sin for so that in him, we might become the righteousness with God. In other words, so that we might become made right with God through Christ. And listen, Jesus wasn't in here just trying to make Matthew better. He didn't need Matthew to be better. He needed Matthew to come alive. Now, Now, don't misunderstand me. Did Matthew get better? Yeah. But that was a byproduct and not the prerequisite. And sometimes we think we gotta clean ourselves up to come to Jesus. We gotta stop doing these certain things. And man, we can't come in there like that. And I can't have tattoos. Oops, already messed up on that. And you can't walk in. And you think that, man, I gotta stop cussing, drinking, smoking, whatever, whatever your thing is, and you're like, man, maybe this is holding me back from God. And God's like, no, no, come as you are. Come broken, come addicted. Come angry, come bitter, come with your doubts, come with your anxieties because you won't leave the same way. And listen, God is not afraid of your doubts. He's not afraid of your questions. He's not afraid of the things that you're sitting here going, man, I just think that God will never accept me because of this thing that I've done. He says, bring it to me. Come exactly as you are and you're not going to leave the same way. That's the promise. The Bible does not say that everyone who behaves for God is made right. It says that anyone who believes in Jesus for that person, there's forgiveness of sin. It's not about behavior modification. It's not the gospel. The gospel is that we would believe that Jesus is who he says he is that he went to the cross in our place, that he died according to the scriptures and was raised from the dead on the third day and that he's now seated and ascended at the right hand of God with all honor, power, and authority forever. It's in a moment of faith, believing that that we're saved because the reality is, I said it, we're all bad people, we've all messed up. Romans 3:23 for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. We've all fallen short. We can't work our way to God. We can't do enough good works, we can't earn it. Romans six twenty three though, three chapters later, says, for the wage of sin is death. It's what we owed. It's eternal separation from God, it's, it's death. But the gift of God is eternal life through his son, Christ Jesus, our Lord. And it says in our text that Matthew leaves everything to follow Jesus. He leaves everything, and I think we look over that text and we just like, yep, he got up and followed Jesus. Listen, you don't understand what he's walking away from. Matthew, in that moment when Jesus says, follow me, he got up in the midst of his sin and left. Left his tax booth, left everything behind. He's leaving wealth, the kind of wealth and money you and I could dream about. He's leaving power. He's leaving protection from Rome. He's walking away from all of it to follow Jesus. He surrendered his whole life. Because he knew that these things are temporary and they're fleeting. But what Jesus was offering was something that was everlasting. And it resonated in his heart and it resonated in his soul. And when Jesus said, follow me, the shame and the guilt all of a sudden began to fall away. And he followed him. This is how you become a Christian. It's easy and it's hard. And I'll be honest with you about that. It's easy in some ways, but it's very hard and very difficult In other ways, in other words, to become a Christian, you do so in a moment of saying, "Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sin. I believe that you did go to the cross for my sin, and that that was the penalty that I had to pay, but you paid it for me. That you were buried in the ground for three days, and that you rose victorious from the dead. And I accept that as a payment for my sin. That's how you get saved. That's it. It's a moment of faith, believing that, that changes your eternity forever. So it's both hard and it's." easy. And it, com- it just, all it virtually requires is nothing. It requires you basically coming to the place where you know you have nothing. I have nothing to offer God. There is nothing that I could do that would be a pleasing uh, sacrifice to God. I can't work my way there. I can't do enough good things. I can't open enough doors. I can't preach enough messages. We can't work our way there. We've always fall short. We don't measure up. We don't. And so it's, it's one of those moments where you're like, man, God, I have nothing to bring, but I know that I don't have to bring anything because you paid it all for me. You paid it all for me, so I don't have to bring anything. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. It's both easy and it's hard because it requires nothing, but also Jesus at the same time demands everything. And I'll explain what I mean by that. When you begin to follow Jesus, when you put your faith in Jesus, this is how people change, by the way. God's spirit indwells inside of the believer. So when you put your faith in Jesus, God's spirit comes into your heart and begins to inform your actions, your decisions, your thought processes, the way you operate, the way you treat people. Everything begins to shift. And all of a sudden, God speaks to your heart and he begins to whisper, hey, let's work on that. Hey, I know you've always dated like that. But let's work work on that. Hey, I know you've always done business in this way, but I want us to change some things. Hey, I know you used to spend your weekends out there like this. But let's reprioritize. Let's make some shifts in your life. God begins to change your appetites. He begins to work through you and and to all of a sudden, man, everything about you just begins to change and he comes into your life and convicts you. And man, you're like, man, I can't even go out and party anymore. Like what's going on? Like I used to be able to go and just like get slammed. It's awesome, fun with my friends. And all of a sudden that that desire, that appetite begins to, to fade. And all of a sudden, there begins to be a shift in appetites and things that used to be so normal. You're like, man, I used to go out on Friday night, go to the bar. It's like find a girl, hook up, take her home. And now all of a sudden, everything begins to change about you. And you still do the same thing. You go out. You're like, hey, girl, what's up? Instead of, going, instead of saying you want to get out of here, you go, you got a Bible? You know Jesus? And, and all of a sudden, things start to shift. Things start to change. And that's what happens. God's like, man, I just, I'm going to start working on this And this and so it begins as this metamorphosis of the soul this 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 cocoon this thing inside you that just begins to shift and break and transform and god does a work in your heart and listen it's easy because at first it requires virtually nothing but it's hard because jesus demands everything see jesus loves you so much that he says come as you are but he also loves you too much to leave you that way he loves you too much to leave you that way and so listen he wants to change everything about you everything about me that doesn't look like jesus listen i want to be very very clear this is not self-help you didn't walk in here on sunday morning because this is like you're like man i need some self-help in my life if you did you're missing the point This is not self-help. We're not trying to be better versions of ourselves. We're trying to be more like Jesus in every action, every situation, every relationship, every way that we interact with our world, with our family. I want to be more like him. I want to be more like Jesus. That's the goal. It's interesting in that sense, though, It is easy, and it is hard. And so if I were to synthesize this entire message, to break it down, summarize, put it in one sentence, take home, put it in your pocket, look back on this day, what's the one thing I want you to hold on to if you forget everything else that came out of my mouth? It's this, good people don't go to heaven, forgiven people do. Forgiven people do. So if you walked in here today, I don't care what kind of baggage you're bringing, I don't care if you're saying, like Paul said, Paul said in the text, I am the chief of sinners. I don't care if you're like, man, I'm the worst of the worst. I feel like I've done this and I've done wrong here and I've wronged these people and I've stolen, I've lied, I've cheated, I've been that guy. I am Matthew. God still looks at you today in your brokenness, in your sin, and while you're still in the midst of it, he looks at you and he says, follow me. As you are come broken come addicted come angry come bitter come exactly as you are and when you come to Jesus it's this great exchange This great surrender that as you give him your anxiety, he gives you his peace. And the Bible says it's peace that surpasses understanding. The Bible says it guards your heart and it guards your mind. And as you come to him and you bring brokenness, he gives you wholeness. As you bring defilement, he gives you purity. And as you walk in here with unrighteousness and all these things, you're like, I've done so much wrong. He says, hey, I'll take on everything that you deserve. You deserve death. And I'll take that for you. I'll take on your brokenness. I'll take on your shame. I'll take on all your sin. And I'm going to give you what I deserve, which is life forever connected with the Father. He says, I'm going to give that to you. I'm going to make you right with God. Not based on your works. Not based on anything you do. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. But it's the kindness and the grace of God. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. That leads us from turning away from our sin and turning towards God. It's his goodness. It's not his anger. It's not his wrath. It's the goodness of God that leads people to a place of repentance, that leads people to an understanding that they are seen and known and loved by the Father and that his care for you goes so much further beyond what you could even possibly comprehend or imagine. It's the goodness that saved me and it's the goodness that can save you. And it's accessible for every person in this room today. And so I want you to know if you're in here and you're like, Pastor and I don't measure up. Neither do I. And you don't have to. Because God paid it all for you through Jesus on the cross. And we all have the opportunity now to put our faith in him. And so I want to read you a scripture out of Matthew chapter 11. Verse 28 and 30. Or 28 through 30. This is Jesus speaking. He says this, are you tired Are you worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me and you will recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me and watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting upon you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. And this, my friends, is the invitation of Jesus to you today to every person in this room. And so one last scripture, and then we're gonna pray. It's in Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, and it says this. Looking to Jesus, the founder, the initiator, and the perfecter of our faith, for the joy, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, do you know what the joy was that was set before him? It was you, it was you, it was you, sir. Man in the back, that was, it was you, it was you. It was all of us, it was me, it was us. We were the joy that was set before him that made him endure the cross because he knew what his reward was. The reward was us. Relationship with us and relationship with him. That's the joy that was set before him. And so today I wanna give you the opportunity to put your faith in Jesus, to say yes to this free gift. And listen, like I said, you do not have to earn it. If you feel like you don't measure up, man, listen, in your weakness, he is shown strong. That's what the Bible says. Where we don't measure up, he does. And so it's a moment of faith saying, yes, I accept this free gift. I don't have to do anything for it. But Jesus, I thank you for dying on the cross for me. It's a simple moment. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation brand new, all has passed away. Behold, all has been made new, completely new. Everything about you, all the things that you look back on in your past, you'd be like, man, can I, can I tell you something that's helpful? It's kind of like the rearview mirror. Anyone got teenagers in here teaching them to drive? Anybody? I was a youth pastor, okay? Got a lot of kids that needed help driving. <laughs> the rear view mirror is something, you know, you check every now and then, right? It's important, you check it. But what happens if you stare at that mirror? You're gonna get in a wreck. Listen, your past is like that. You glance it in the mirror, it's meant to be a place of reference, not a place of residence. You don't live there, you look there to say, look how far I've come. Look what God has done in my life. Look what he brought me out of. I was broken and now I'm healed. I I had anxiety and now I have peace. I was broken. An unworthy, a bad person, a sinner, And in his grace, he called me. So you have the opportunity today to not live there anymore. We can look there. We can learn from it. But we don't have to live there. We can put our faith in Jesus. We can turn away from our sin and we can turn towards following him every day for the rest of our lives. And we can run hard and we can see a city change for Jesus. We can see a city change come to know their savior we can see a city begin to be known for joy for love for kindness we can see a city radically impacted we can see a city where every single ministry and every single outreach opportunity is funded by people in the kingdom we can see a city that really is known to be an oasis for people that are hurting that are lost that are broken but it starts with us, it doesn't start with that, it starts with you and me right here. So with making a decision. So what I wanna do is I wanna invite you, every head bowed, every eye closed, just a personal moment with Jesus. If you're not right with God, but you wanna be right with him today, you wanna put your faith in Jesus and accept the free gift that he offers to you turning away from sin and turning towards Jesus. If that's you, I'd love to know who I'm praying for this morning. I'm not going to embarrass you or anything. I just want to know who I'm praying for. So with every head bowed, I close. If that's you, on the count of three, you want a relationship with Jesus, would you just put your hand up? One, two, three, if that's you. Thank you. You can keep it up for just one second so I can see. Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. You can put your hands down. Thank you so much. Hey, I'm going to pray a prayer, and I want us to pray this together, and there's nothing special or magical about this prayer. This is simply a heart declaration, putting your faith in Jesus, and I want us to pray it as a a church family all together. I don't want anyone to feel alone or left out. This is a journey that we go on together, and so let's pray this together. Would you all just pray this with me? Just say, dear Jesus, I thank you for dying on the cross for me so that I could live. I turn away from my sins and from my past, and I turn towards you. I thank you for a new life and the grace to follow you every day from this day forward. Fill me with your spirit and guide me in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. Come on, can we give it up for the people that just chose to put their faith in Jesus? Friends, that is the greatest decision you could ever make in your life. And and I want to be very clear with you. This is not an emotional moment, raising our hand and saying, yes, I wanna follow Jesus just on a Sunday. This is every day waking up. Every day saying, God, I'm gonna follow you again today. I'm laying down my life. I'm gonna die to myself. I'm gonna die to selfishness, to my own pleasure, the only things I want, and I'm gonna follow and serve you. Listen, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're perfect. We're still on a journey. You still every day are in a battle with your flesh and your spirit, and you gotta choose which one you feed. So let me encourage you. This is not a journey you are meant to go on by yourself. We wanna walk with you. We wanna equip you. We have a gift for you at the Resource Center that will help you kinda of understand everything. Take a walk with us. We'll give people that'll come alongside you because we wanna walk with you through this journey of following Jesus. It's every day for the rest of our lives. But would you stand with me, church? I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna worship one more time together. And I'm just gonna pray that God would begin to use this community. As you look around at the people around you, I'm gonna pray that God would use this community to make an impact on this city that outlives all of us, that impacts your children and your grandchildren and their children and generation after generation. Because listen, this isn't about Oasis City Church. This is about the church. And so we're praying for every church in the valley. We're partnering with these churches and we're gonna see a city changed. We're gonna see a city set free by the power of Jesus. Jesus, I pray right now for this church, for this community you brought together. I thank you for them. God, I pray that you would build a resolve in us, that we would boldly declare your name, that we would boldly live out our faith, God, that we would not shrink in the face of adversity or challenge or trials. God, we lean into what you have for us and we declare over the city of Boise, God, this city, God, will come to know you. This city will be marked for the love of God, for the kindness and the goodness of God. Lord, we pray that addictions will be broken in our city. We pray people will be set free. We pray families will be restored in the name of Jesus, God. We ask that you would use our church, mobilize our people, God, and let us be used for your kingdom and for your purposes. God, we love you and we praise you in the mighty name of Jesus. Come on, somebody shout amen. Amen, amen. Let's worship. Thanks again for listening to the Oasis City Church podcast. We would love the opportunity to connect with you, pray for you, or give you next steps on your journey of following Jesus. Send us an email to info at oasiscity.church to get connected today.